Hi everyone, welcome back to the Media Mates Podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week I'll chat to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next, and everything else in between. My guest today is Dan Ganain from Triple M. Dan has been working with Triple M for over 15 years and is currently heading up the station's NRL coverage hosting the nightly sports show The Rush Hour, as well as the Dead Set Legends on a Saturday morning. We chat about the influence Ray Warren has had on his career, how he flummed his way into a couple of major sporting events, and how I inadvertently played a role in him getting a start in radio. Dan's a very interesting and confident guy, so I really hope you enjoy our chat. Dan Ganae, thanks for joining us on the Media Mates podcast. Ralph Tucker, how are you, mate? This is uh, this is quite weird. Talk. First, I haven't seen you for a while, so it's nice to actually see you. Why are you talking to me, Ralph? I mean, I've seen, I've heard your interviews with uh, Andrew Moore and Murray Olds and Sarah Harris. They've actually done some things. We come to, we come that far down the bottom of the barrel now that you you're going with blokes that just because you used to work with them. Oh, let's put them on. <laughs> it's not like that. I'm sure that people out there would be interested to hear how you started and how it all happened and how you got to where you are today. So yeah, let's go to that. To begin with, was it always radio and sport the fascination for you? Definitely. Radio started for me with Hollywood and Zorba uh, back in the mid-80s with 2GB calling the football. And that's when I sort of got to love radio and then probably fell out of love a little bit as a kid, you know, when you sort of discover new things. But then along came Stan Zamani. And um, then I fell in love with radio again. So I was, you know, it was in year 12 of high school when I should have been studying for the HSC. Seven o'clock every no six o'clock every night sports today on two UE and then stands a morning for the next five hours and that was from that point I knew okay this is this is the only thing I'm passionate about so I've got to somehow find a way to make this work as for sport yes I was in year three and uh, my teacher called in my parents for a um a one-on-one or whatever you call it meeting parent teacher interview a parent teacher like a special one yeah. so i was in a lot of trouble right and he basically said uh i don't know how to tell you this but your son is obsessed with sport to the point where i can't run the classroom because all he does is go on and on about sport so uh so that obviously the die was cast there so there it is radio and sport never a desire to do tv or anything like that it was always there was something magical about radio that, you, that, that that I was in love with. And how did you get your foot in the door to begin with? It's always been Triple M for you. It's 15, you're aware you're part years. of this story, aren't you? Yes, I am. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, I did three years of uni at uh, Wollongong, arts degree. Wonderful place. I recommend it highly. And arts degree is very, a very nice education, but does sweet F all in terms of setting you up for a, a job in the business. Well, that's certainly my experience. So I went and did work experience at 2GB. Now, this is in the days when 2GB had no ratings and everyone wanted to get work experience at 2UE. So I got knocked back there and 2GB let me in where I met some great people like Mike Gibson. He was great, actually. took me under his wing. Uh, Brian Carlton, the spoon man. Yeah. Um, And Andrew Moore. And straight away, he he was great. I thought, I... If I ever make it in this business, I'll have respect for you. Well, no matter what, make it or not, respect for you forever because he's just a champion bloke, Greg Rust. Anyway, so I did that for uh, every Monday and Tuesday for three weeks, and I thought, okay, I'm set. 
I'm set. This is, this is going. How it's going to play out is I'm going to just embed myself here. Eventually, an around the grounds guy is going to be sick. They're going to call me in because that was in the day when they actually had around the grounds guys because they used to have games oh, when you used to have you know three or four games on a Sunday afternoon. You know, I miss that. I know oh, it's I'll great to have well. every game. I know it's great to have every game on TV. But when your team, my team was Canterbury, when whoever was around the grounds, and you would get nervous waiting for the update. And imagine yes. when the game was close and the and the the main game was a blowout, and that bloke would call the game. That was that was that no, was no the in, magic no, of radio. No, no internet, nothing. At that, <laughs> that, that particular stage, you think you know. While it it seems like eons ago, it really isn't that that long ago at all. Fifteen years. Yeah. Anyway, so. I thought, okay, I'm set. This is how it's going to play out. David Tapp, who was running the news or running the sports department, then tapped me on the shoulder and said, look, we can't have you anymore. Your insurance only covered two weeks. I think that was a nice way of saying, like, listen, you're a bit of a pest and <laughs> we could do without you. So that was fine. Um, so I thought, oh, shit, what am I going to do now? That was in my final year of uni and ended up going through to the end of uni. And basically I was a bum. I was working at Franklin's. Right. And I'm working there for seven years. But that was it. I had no prospects, no nothing. And then early 99, someone had told my father at his work that they heard an ad for the two-day FM community switchboard. Yes. You know, your way to get into radio. So dad gave me the number, the details, and I called up and I went in and uh, did an interview. Now, I <laughs> I brought my CV, not that it was much on it, but, you know, I dressed properly, yeah. had a whatever – Passed as a suit. I'm sure I couldn't have afforded one then. So, <laughs> uh, whatever passes a suit, and I've done. And she was gobsmacked that I'd bring. She said, "What are you bringing in a CV for? This is this is volunteer work." Anyway, so I got in there. I was in the station. I'm thinking, okay, well, this will be good for the two weeks until they bring yeah, yeah, me yeah. out again. But anyway, time went on and on and on, and it's basically just answering phones and people ringing up and saying, you know, what can I do this weekend? What's going on in Sydney? It's actually a good service. And you actually had a list of things that were yeah. so happening. You know what was going on at Darling yeah, yeah. Harbour or you know what was going on uh, you know, at Bondi or whatever. So I did that for a while and I noticed that people who were eminently more talented than I was were um, just getting sick of it and dropping off. Like they'd do it for a month and because they didn't get a full-time job quickly, they sort of left. And I thought that was a bit strange and it didn't bother me. I'd go in every Friday. Anyway, I finally had the courage to go walk to the newsroom and I met two people, Ali Drower and Russell Barwick. And now, this was in the days where Triple M was at the old Bondi, Bondi Junction. Junction yeah. Bondi Junction. I wish it was still there. Great. World Square is great. But yeah. there was something magical about that was a proper radio station. Yes. Now, now we're in the world where everything's open plan and it's like you're working in a bank. You know, back then you had these little crevices and places where people would blast music and you'd hear screaming matches and it was that was proper radio. They sort of took me under their wing. They got me to write the traffic on a Friday afternoon because they would like to have a, a wine in the afternoon while they did their news and sport and uh, just one or two, nothing salacious, but they'd get me to write the traffic and that was a great experience. So I would, you know, punch it out and... After a couple of months of doing that, I thought, okay, I've earned the right to now ask for help. I thought, okay, I've done, I've done my yards now. I'm going to go in and ask yeah. for advice. So I went in. They got me to read a bulletin off the air, obviously, and I was terrible. But they started giving me lessons and hints, and there was one day, as I'm just starting to get better, not any good, by the way, but just starting to get somewhere 
almost on airworthy. There was this magical day where in the you had Ali, you had Russell, you had David White, yes. one of the great newsreaders of all time, and uh, they're all chiming in with advice. And I, you know, you have that out of body moment where you go, "I'm going to remember this forever." <laughs> not even, not even. I'm thinking this is unbelievable. There are kids that go to Max Rowley, and that's a wonderful school, and other, and they pay hundreds of dollars. I'm getting the best people at what they do telling me advice. Whitey telling me it's all about the pausing and, you know, you've got to, you know, it's one word every sentence. You've got, you've got to make sure one word out of every sentence pops and that's the word you hit on. Like all these, uh, Ali Drower was, you know, don't waste words and Russell was great as well back then. So unbelievable education. Then some bloke decided, uh, who was doing Sunday afternoon rugby league reports, Decided to go to Europe, I believe. <laughs> please tell me it was a if you're gonna if you're gonna ditch work. Please tell me it was a Kentucky tour. There was Kentucky involved. May have been six weeks. Oh, and I think we- I went. Yeah, I think I went for I think six months or eight months at that time. Oh, that's uh, a good that's yeah. a good run. So and then ended up probably staying two years in the end. But uh, oh, well, yeah, that person was me that yeah. went away. But so I, was, they- I was doing stuff with uh, Rory McDonald, who was doing the afternoon champion sport. bloke. Yeah. Champion bloke. Yeah. So. That opened the door for you to get in. It did. They said, um, do you want to do 20-second updates on the hour at the match of the day? Of course. I didn't even, didn't even flinch. And then they said, we'll pay you 100 bucks." And I've got, are you, are you kidding? You're going to pay me? Yeah. <laughs> it's a, like, it's, it was unbelievable. We get the, Mar- I remember the date, March 26, 2000. I get sick. A couple of days before I get a bad cold. And I'm thinking... Uh, I shouldn't be on air. I, I don't know what I'm doing. Fuck it. I've got to. Can you swear on this thing? You can swear. Sorry. Sorry about that, everyone. I thought, okay, this is my one chance I'm going to do this. Nervous as anything. And Russell, the day before, said, now, if you go 20.1 seconds, I'm going to throw you off air. It was good like that. <laughs> and now, um, now, I obviously wouldn't have, but it was, I thought, okay, don't go over 20.1 seconds. So I drove to Leichhardt. So nervous, I, I almost wished for an accident so I wouldn't do the game. I was that wow. nervous. I, was, I, was, I thought, if I muck this up, That's I'm it. finished. I'm, I'm done. Yeah. It's over. Back to Franklin's. Back to, well, I was, I was still at Franklin's. <laughs> I was there for another few years after that. So I went there and did it, and uh, I did a, uh, the game was at 3 o'clock. So I did a 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, yep. 20 seconds. Game was a great one. Joel Kane kicked a penalty goal to make it a 14-all draw. Yeah. So the game had drama. I threw an opinion in there somewhere, which was unbelievably stupid. Who cares about the opinion of a 21-year-old who's never done this in his life? And that was it. They were happy with it, and that got the ball rolling. So from that point, and that's the hardest thing for kids, is to get the foot in the door, and I know that's the hardest thing. But once I, I knew then that, okay, now I control my own destiny. If I'm no good at this, well, then that's my fault, and that's fine. But I've no, now, now I've got my start. It's really on me. And from that point, you know, a lot of ups and downs, but it, it sort of went from there. So how important was that for you to get your confidence up and to prove to yourself that you could actually do it along with that expert tutelage that you had from those people that yeah. showed you this is the way that you can do it? Once I got through the first bulletin, I was okay. Yeah, Everything was scripted. I was nowhere near ready for to ad lib. Uh, and not, I didn't want to ad lib, you know. And obviously, when you're starting and you're reading a script, you sound very wooden. Yeah. So that's, you know, I had that for a while, as everyone does. Then the next step was okay, now I have to be 
there's always a next – no matter what you do, there's always, okay, what's the next thing? So the next thing was being good enough to read bulletins on the air. Yeah. Now, that took ages because I just wasn't good enough. I could write a script, but yeah. I couldn't read a script. Anyway, that took about a year, plus opportunity had to come. Now, this was in the days when you had someone doing breakfast sport. That's right. Someone doing drive time sport. Yep. And someone doing weekend sport That's in right. the morning and weekend sport in the afternoon. So it was fertile territory. Anyway, some, uh, something opened up early 2001, and I got a chance. It was in the morning. It was Saturday morning, and again, didn't sleep a wink. I took sleeping tablets. Never taken sleeping tablets before. But I bought over-the-counter sleeping tablets and didn't realize that what comes with sleeping tablets uh, is elevated anxiety. Right. So the dreams that I would have before that first shift, it just everything I dreamt was that I was naked or I didn't turn up or I said someone died and they hadn't. So I just, that was a, so that put me in good shape going to the, driving to the studio. Got through that, was ordinary but good enough. And again, just moved on up, moved on up, moved on up. Then the next thing was about a year later, Russell asked me to do the phones for Dead Set Legends. This is in the start of 2002. And, and at that stage, the Dead Set Legends was or had really built itself up to be an iconic sports show on a Saturday morning. It'd be running for, what, five years at That'd that stage? That'd be about probably? right, yeah. 98, I think it started. This is in the time when Triple M didn't have – this is the only presence, sporting presence Triple M had in programming. Obviously, yeah. he had the Bulletins. There's no football back then. There was no anything, no rush hour, no nothing else but two hours of Dead Set Legends. So, of course, I said yes to that, and that's where I met Rabs. And he took me under his wing. Greg Matthews as well. That was an education, those two blokes, of dealing with um, personalities and egos. Uh, nothing wrong with egos, but they had healthy egos and they were very different. Then in October that year, the producer, Damien Carbon, wasn't producer anymore. And he moved on, so they asked me to do that. And that from that point, I've been producing it ever since, minus one year where I wasn't part of the show. So... That was what, 2006, it was 14 years ago. And then sort of it kept going bit by bit from there. Tell me about working with Raps. What's it like? It must just be an education every time you step into the studio or have him on the program. When we started, when we started, he would destroy these live reads that would go, a 30-second live read that would go for two and a half minutes. And I used to fight him on it. Now, you know, I'd just say, come on, Raps, can you... Dan, you don't understand it's all about theatre and... Graham Kennedy made a living doing this. And, of course, now, you know, it took me a little while to embrace that, but, you know, he was all very theatrical. When it was a quiet day, you ramp up the theatre aspect. You bung on a fight. I mean, anyone who listens to Dead Set Legends now, those fights with Richard Friedman aren't real. That's when Rabs can sense that we're in a bit of a lull and we just need something to ramp up the entertainment value. That's what Rabs told me, entertainment commentary we used to have these deep conversations not even about me it was about um anthony maroon he was the main caller of monday night football the original main caller and i was the producer in the second year so i'd ring rabs and i go look what can we you know he's going well obviously going well anthony but what can we can can i get you to listen i mean i don't know i don't know what he's doing right or wrong i wouldn't have a clue but can you and the detail the the detail of his art is staggering he's just talking about cadence and what to do when plays a little bit slow, what to do when the crowd's going off, what to do when the crowd's a bit silent. It's an, luck is everything, I reckon, in this business. And you, like, even the great ones will tell you how lucky they are 
to be in the environment they're in, to get the jobs, the opportunities. Uh, that's my story because I've, I've been. You have to be lucky to get the opportunities. You need someone to have faith that you can do it. Yeah. But also, how lucky did I get to work with Rabs every week? Oh, honestly, for 15 years, I've got to work with him minimum once a week. So it's been a 15-year education. And where he won me forever, not that he needed to, but that year, so I started producing in 2002. It was one of the years where Triple M had a budget cut sweeping of the uh, – they, they swept through the building with budget cuts and they removed – I was doing weekend sport permanently by then – they just got rid of it. They just had the jock read Weekend Sport. I think that was off the back of that fail M1 concert that they had, and oh, then they realised that was. they need to put the put the broom through the joint to recure yeah. a few of the, so thanks, the financials. So thanks to <laughs> no one giving a shit about Billy Idol in 2002 and no one turning up, yeah, the broom got, got, got went through the place. So Because you then went, like, briefly, because I remember taking a call from you in the newsroom, I'd moved, I'd come back from overseas. I'd been overseas for two years and I'd come back and I'd got a job at, at GB. Yeah. I specifically remember getting a call from you in the 2GB newsroom asking to speak to Justin Kelly because you were out of, out of, a, out of a job. Jeez, I don't even remember that. And yeah. then you ended up at UE for a few weeks. Am I yeah. not mistaken? That's exactly what happened. So they cut me. They said, we're going to keep you on as Dead Set Legends producer, which paid 200 bucks. And, uh, and again, I didn't care about money. You know, I was just happy for the gig. But once they cut my weekend sport, then 200 bucks with my Franklin's money, I couldn't, even though I was living at home, geez, this was tough. So Russell, God bless him, I think got me the gig at, in fact, I'm pretty sure, got me the gig at 2UE. And I was doing weekend sport in the morning. Breakfast? Yes. I think Greg Burns was, yes, Greg Burns was running the room. And Johnny Gibbs was involved as well in, in me getting the gig because yeah. he had to punt me in the end, which we'll get to in a second, but he did it beautifully and I always have respect for him. So I did weekend sport from in, in January, I think it was. Well, I know it was January because it happened when Steve Wall got his 100 at the SCG. It happened during the Sydney to Hobart. The reason I remember that is because Malcolm T. Elliott, Malcolm T. Elliott, <laughs> is he still with us, Malcolm T.? Uh, I think so. He walked into the, the newsroom. Now, you've got to remember, my only experience of radio is FM. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. So I had no experience of AM radio. And he walked in yelling, who pronounced such and such boat oh, this? God. And I said, me, thinking, here it comes. Well, I just want to congratulate you. You're the only effing person in this joint that's got this right. These effwits in the newsroom wouldn't have an effing clue. Um, and I've, and he's walked out. I've just looked around, and I think it was either Penny Gosson or Greg Burns said, welcome to AM Radio. <laughs> so that was my experience. And it was going fine, and I really enjoyed it because, you know, I'm, sh- I'm sure you are the same. I saw FM as the toy department, yep. and AM Radio was real radio. So to go Absolutely. from FM to AM, I thought, shit, can I actually do this? And and really, the only advice Burns he had said, you've got to slow down. Yeah. You read too, we have an older audience and you read too fast. So that was a great experience because that, again, just helped the confidence level thinking, okay, I can do this. Anyway, this was around the time when Greg Radley was doing sports today on 2UE. Yeah, that's going back to work. Well, yeah. I don't think it, it mustn't have worked because he was still contracted, but they Either he'd left sports today or the, something happened there. They had nothing for him to do. So they decided. He was reading afternoon sport or something. Well, well they decided 
that they he, he was must have been he was living in Canberra. Yeah. So he must have been commuting. They said they decided they're going to have him do weekend sport from six a.m. to six p.m. Saturday and Sunday to fill out his contract. Yeah. All of a sudden, no need for me anymore. So they let me down gently, Burnsy and and, and Gibbsy, and that was the end of my two UE run. So then I, uh, uh, Triple M brought back Weekend Sport about three months later. So I was back in the game. Interesting experience there, that period, because I actually managed to keep my Dead Set Legends job. Right, while you were still doing Well, the there was other, no Dead yeah. Set Legends on during the, my UE run. Yeah. So they hadn't, had a, had a produ- hadn't got a producer yet. So once I went back with my tail between my legs to Triple M, they took me back, but uh, just easy for them to hire me than hire anyone else. And then, again, from there... It, that was sort of so two blows in a month. Cut from Triple M Sport, cut from Two UE. That shook the confidence, even though neither of those things were really my fault. And, and so I, I sort of questioned, do I want to do this? But in that month at Two UE, I got to meet, or at least over the phone, talk to Graham Agars, and I asked him. He was at the Australian Open, and I said, "Look, I know. Look, you would get this all the time, but." I'm th- and two UE at this stage had already let me go. I was on for one yeah, final yeah, yeah. weekend. <clears throat> and they'd said to me, and, and I thought, you know what? I've got about 10 grand in the bank. I'm going to blow it. I've never been overseas. You know what? This is such a fickle industry. I'm sick of I'm buggering. I'm going around the world. Right? People do it. And I said to Graham, look, this is, I know this is absurd, but I'm going to be in England in June this year. How do I go about getting into Wimbledon? Look, I know a million people try and get in. He said, well, you're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe this, but my wife also does what I do, and she's bilingual, but she's off having a baby. I need to fill my seat, otherwise I lose it. Would you like to take my seat? Wow, that's so cool. So I couldn't believe it, but I said, now, I've got to tell you, I'm only going to be there for the last four days. He wanted me to be there for the two weeks. I didn't want to be at Wimbledon for two weeks. I wanted to go to America and had a Kentucky tour to go to. So I went and saw Mark Philippoussis win the semi-final of Wimbledon and then lose in the final to Roger Federer. I'm there at centre court. It was one of the, again, out-of-body experience. And then I bought him a bottle of Grange. Here's a tip, kids. Don't ever buy a bottle of Grange in England. Oh, costs a lot more than here. And I said to him, mate, I've got to thank you, mate. This is an experience of a lifetime. Now, what are the chances of getting me into the Masters? There he goes, mate. Pushing your luck He said, you're a million to one, but I'll get back to you. Anyway, never got back to me. Two weeks before I get an email from someone called Martha Wallace at masters.org. Right. Hello, Daniel. Could you please send a passport photo and your work details? What? So I've gone to Graham. What the hell is this? He's gone, oh, you must have got in. I said, Graham, mate, I can't pull out of work. I'm I'm going all right here. I can't rock the boat. He Mm. said, I understand, but just know that if you knock them back, you will never, ever go. You you'll be blacklist- You might be blacklisted forever. So I went, shit, I'm going to have to go. So I, I spoke to Russell, and he let me off, and he understood. How many chances does anyone get to go to the Masters? Yeah. So two weeks before, I get the time off, no accommodation. I have to book an a, 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 a apartment or a hotel, a shitty hotel room in um, – a town called Aiken, South Carolina. Right. Do you know where that is? No. 90 miles from Augusta. Wow. So every day I'm driving on the opposite side of the road, 90 miles back and forth. And you know what? Totally worth it. you got to do what you got to do, right? So do, that was I, At one time I was so jet-lagged, I had to pull over and sleep in the car for an hour and in the state highway. Take us through that experience. 
of going to the most iconic golf tournament in the world in 2003? Four. 2004. Right. So, well, the first thing is Augusta, if you drive through a certain area, is a dump. And you're thinking, I must be in the wrong area. This is in the days before GPS. Yeah. So I'm, you know, with the big pull-out map thinking, am I in the right area? Because you go through Washington Road and it's all bloody industrial. It's, uh, and it's all big sort of Taco Bells and KFCs. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and they also, you know, the, the, the comfort in and welcome Masters players and, you know, good luck, uh, welcome fans. Hooters, I'm not kidding. I promise you this is true. said, Hooters. Good luck, John Daly. <laughs> and nice. there were people, and I didn't realise this at the time, 30 miles out of um, out of town, on the highway, I'm thinking they're hitchhiking. They're holding up signs 30 miles out of town saying, Master's tickets wanted. So you think, uh, then then you drive up, and it's like this haven in the middle of, uh, middle of nowhere. Although by the time you get to the course... The surrounding homes are pretty beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, big southern white homes. They're not above making a buck though, because they charge. They have these massive yards, and they charge you. The closer to the course, they, the more they charge. Like park cost on me the lawn. Twenty-five bucks to park on the lawn, <laughs> and then you walk up and you go through the master's car park, and it's all gravelly. Nothing sort of special about this. And, but the whole time, my heart's beating because I'm thinking, Am I going to get in? What happens? If my pass, when they scan it, doesn't work. Yeah, I've come yeah, all the way around. I don't know if this is going to work anyway. So they beep it. Nothing happens. Shit. I'm in trouble. And I don't have Graham Agar's details. So I'm, yeah. I'm on my own here. Second time he beeps it, beep, beep. Walk You're through, in. sir. I'm in. So that was, wow. And then you walk in and it's, it's utopia. It's as green as it looks on television. The off-course areas, sort of the walkways are... Beautifully manicured. Um, everything is green. All the sort of tables and chairs are green, so it all fits in. All the all the this is only a small detail, but all the television cabling is green. Right. So when you know you don't see cables on the grass, the towers are green. Attention to detail. Hilly. Yeah. Hilly is anything. You that you know you don't realise just how steep it can get. But uh, I got there on a Tuesday. First thing I did this is eight in the morning. You just got to walk the course. So I walked the course and then got to the end, walked the course again and did that on the Tuesday. On the Wednesday was the path. I just soaked in every minute I could. Turned up 8 o'clock on the third. It was a bit early. By the time I drove in, I missed the ceremonial tee off, but I got to see Peter Lonard. I thought, okay, he's an Aussie. I'm going to follow him. Bogeyed for the first five holes, but uh, that was – but I tell you what was strange was it was misty. And it was grey, and I thought, this doesn't feel like the Masters. And then you realise like <laughs> it's in the afternoon when the sun's out and the shadows are there. Right. I'm here. This is, this is surreal. And Phil Mickelson won. He beat Ernie Els, and, and they went toe-to-toe down the back nine. And the uh, most unbelievable thing happened. So huge crowds. You'd hear a roar. Phil was playing behind Ernie, and I was following Ernie because I thought he was going to win. And Ernie would make a birdie. And then you'd hear a roar on 12. Ernie's on 13. You'd hear a roar on 12. And you, you could tell by the time he got to the fourth day, you knew what the roars meant. Yeah. You knew one was a great shot. You knew one was a birdie putt. You knew one was an eagle putt on, on 13. So you knew, so big roar, Phil's birdie. Then everyone's walking down the 13th, the par five, and this woman yells out, Ernie, Ernie. Everyone stops. What's this nut job doing yelling at Ernie Els? He stops. Everyone stops. He looks around. 
He makes eye contact with the woman. She yells something in Afrikaan. I don't know what. He goes into his golf bag, pulls something out, throws it into the gallery. It's his car keys. His wife needed the car keys. He's six. He's playing the back nine of the Masters and his wife, and he's totally cool. Oh, I thought, what a surreal moment. But anyway, uh, I could go on and on. I went to the, again, said to Graham, mate, okay, another bottle of Grange. This is unbelievable. Can we do this again? Well, you know, you never know, but I'll put in for you. Got in again. Wow. This time I had a bit more notice, so I stayed much closer to town. Tiger won that one, so I can say forever that I got to see Roger Federer win a slam and Tiger win a, a golf major or a master. So, and I knew at that moment in 2005 I'd never come here again. So I just, that last day, I just looked around and almost took photos in my brain because I thought I will never, ever get to do this again. And I can still, right now, 11 years on, I could picture the final hole and the trees and the light. It's magic. So you've pretty much ticked off what every sports lover's dream is. Wimbledon? Yep. US Masters? Yep. Now let's fast forward a few years. 2012. Yeah. The last minute dash to the Olympic Games in London. Oh, God, Tell yes. me about that. Like that's that's something else that you can tick off as well. Going to, you know, it was great when we had the Olympics here in Sydney because even if you didn't have tickets to the event, it was accessible. You were in the, in yeah. the town and it was in our city. But to go to a foreign Olympic Games, tell us about that. My problem is that I'm quite a spur of the moment. Now, that's not good when you're trying to plan things <laughs> out. So at, in 2012, what was it in 2012? I was doing rush hour, first year of rush hour, and Monday night football. We didn't have the prop, full-time rights yet, so we were only doing Monday nights. And there was something about being a London Games. Yes. And the time slot was pretty good. There was a lot of events. Even though a lot of events were four in the morning, a lot of stuff was going to happen early in the day, London time. So that would be prime time Australia. So I knew that this was going to be, and let's be honest, we're an Anglo-Saxon society. So I knew this was going to be London Games. This is going to be one of the bigger international ones. So about three weeks before, I went to the boss, Jamie Angel, and I said, look, I know this is impossible, but Channel 9 were broadcasting. Yeah, so Rabs was going. I knew Rabs was there, so I knew I had him, and I knew for the first week I had him, so I had credibility because he's the swimming caller, and the second week we'll play it by him. Yeah. So I said to Jamie, look, look, I know this is going to cost a bomb. I don't expect it to happen, but I think we can make two weeks of really good radio if somehow you can send me to London. They did the costs. They said, we need a sponsor. So, not going to happen. They ring me on the... I was at the pub. We must have had a farewell for someone. It was at the pub at Surrey Hills. What's that pub called on the corner? That, well, oh, the, the clock, corner, yeah. yeah. On the corner. But we're having a farewell for someone, or sales were having someone, and I got a phone call. You got the trip. Gillette are going to sponsor it. Shit, I wasn't ready for that. Had to leave on Tuesday. So, this is Friday. But here's the problem. Can't afford a studio. Can't afford any outside talent. So good luck going to a show. I don't know how you're going to do it technically. So we took two flash mics over, the old the old microphone with the chip inside it, and yep. you could connect it with USB. And this is how we did the show. I would talk into one mic. Rabs would talk into the other. I'd go back to my hotel at Canary Wharf. I had to stay at Canary Wharf because that's where Rabs was. Yep. Shocking place in terms of access. I'd put the two files together, and I'd have to sync them up. This was a nightmare process because it was always just a touch-off sync for some reason. So every break you had to, in fact, almost every comment you had to cut and paste and just put it up. This was 
for a one-hour show, you're looking at with ads and, and, and songs, 25 minutes of content. I'm telling you, it took three to four hours to put together each night's show. So it, people wouldn't understand. They wouldn't understand the machinations behind the scenes of how that all comes together. But when you're listening in Sydney, pretty much seamless. Well, here's the other trick, and this is a dirty trick that someone taught me. Jason Morrison, I think, taught me this years and years ago. Ambience is your best friend. So any time I go and do one of these trips, the first thing I do is go to the centre of town with an iPhone or whatever, because iPhone picks up great ambience, and I went to Trafalgar Square. <laughs> I went to Trafalgar Square and just recorded an hour of ambience. Sent that back to Sydney. So every single break had us playing, but with this ambience underneath. And, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but it made people think we're in London. Yeah, so we've recorded the ambience here today. It just seemed like the room we're, we're in Coogee. We're in a cafe at the Black Pony Cafe just to make it like we're normal people. But the, because we had a, a great young producer at the time, Ned Green, and God, he worked hard over that trip, but we both made the fatal error of playing the same ambience in the same spot. So we started getting emails in the last week. They could hear the same blood. The same siren was going off two minutes into the show. Anyway, so we learned our lesson because when we did the Super Bowl two years later, again, same thing. We tried to record ambience, but the phone froze because it was minus 10 in New York. Anyway, we put the ambience in different spots. So there we go. There's a naughty trick we play. What was the question? Okay. Oh, <laughs> the experience of London. And I mean, it gave you a great experience also to go on little side trips as well, like going and meeting Phil Taylor. Oh, mate. Uh, you love your darts, so I love my darts. To hear that, the fact that, okay, Dan's there covering the Olympics for all intents and purposes, but off he goes to, where was it, Blackpool, Blackpool. or somewhere? Blackpool. So this was, not only was it during the Olympics, but it was the first competitive day because the opening ceremony was Friday night, and I'm not needed on air until Sunday night London time, so I've sort of got a spare day. So I'm thinking, okay, I've been to the darts before the World Championships in Essex in 2005, but I thought I want to go to the north of England to see what it's like. So I got on the train four hours up to Blackpool. This is the first day of Olympic competition. Stayed in, um, uh, no accommodation, just did it on the fly. So I book accommodation thinking uh, I found a room for 30 quid. Thinking, how? Jeez, how good is this? Happy days. Anyway, it was like a room out of National Lampoon's European Vacation. It was basically one room with a shower in the corner. The, the water, it wasn't automatic. You had to pump action the water out. Anyway, so I did uh, spoke to Phil Taylor. It was amazing. Here's the thing about Blackpool and the north of England. They get pissed during the day because it's hot. In the, it's hot. It's summer. It's yeah. their summer holiday. And then by the time they get to the darts, they're so bloated, they're on the strongbows. thought, okay, I'm going to have to do my Vox Pops in the first session here because by yep. the second session... Good night. Good, and that's exactly <laughs> how it was. So got the train back, spent the four hours editing up everything, and that was part of the, um, that was part of the experience. The second week was much hairier because Rabs went home. He did the swimming and went home. Right. Second week, we had our usual host, but they were in Sydney. So the only way we could do it again, without a studio, was I was on a phone, they were on a phone, I would record into a flash mic, they would record into the Vox Pro, oh. and poor Ned would have to put the two together. Patch it up. So it sounds like a conversation. It sounds like a conversation. So wow. we got it done. And once we – these things you realise, what's great about them is you realise, okay, now we can do a show from anywhere in the world under any circumstances. So when we went to the Super Bowl two years later, we knew we had that as a backup. But by then, technology had improved. 
I took a Comrex over, plugged in unbelievably my shitty apartment had an old Ethernet connection because they didn't they weren't up to Wi-Fi standard oh, yet. Right, okay. So I'm broadcasting at two in the morning live off an internet connection, no ISDNs, because you know, six o'clock show Mm. Doesn't have the budget for ISDN. Unbelievable, unbelievable experience. So I guess that uh, that taught you that you could pretty much do anything that you wanted and make it sound entertaining. Well, that's the key, Ralph. It's nice to say let's go to the Super Bowl for a week, but you got to realise you got to know what your audience is. And I love NFL probably more than any other sport, bar NRL, rugby league, and cricket. But does the audience? No. They might have a mild fascination, but most of the audience couldn't give a shit about American football. Yeah. Maybe different now with the Jared Haynes stuff. So I thought, okay, what do you do? You do you learn the lessons of London. You do Vox Pops. You play silly games with them. Hamish and Andy would do sort of something on a much grander, a much funnier level. You know, you, you try and make it about the people on the show. Uh, so if Rabs was the guest host or Sturlo, you'd sort of show... Americans, a picture of Sterlow and think, what does he do for yeah. a living? You know, you're all stupid games just to be entertaining because as important as we think sport is, the audience, what are they doing at 6 o'clock? They're in their car, they've had a shit day at work, and they just want to be entertained. Yeah. If we did one hour of serious sport, we'd put them to sleep. When major news breaks, you go serious and you do an hour. If I've got an editorial... I'll do an editorial, but honestly, most people just want to be entertained. Well, that's how we—that's the attitude that we've taken into the show. Triple M NRL currently, and it's now approaching fourth year as full-time, full-time. Yeah. full-time coverage. Because obviously, as you mentioned earlier, you had the the Monday night coverage before that, so you had a, a good taste of that working with Sturlo and Joey on, yeah. on Monday night. But now it seems as though it's a cast of thousands for Triple M or NRL. Yeah. They've invested heavily in it. What approach did you want to take for that coverage? Because 2GB had obviously changed their coverage over yeah. the years to evolve into this whole, you know, entertainment package and then call the games. ABC is what it's pretty much always been. Yeah. Triple M has gone and got the contemporary guys, your Wendell Sailors, your Ryan Girdlers, Gordon Tallis, just to give it that edge with that younger audience. Is that the approach that, that you took and also need to be serious when you want to be yeah. serious? You've got to understand that 2GB have done a masterful job of what they do. They are a jibber fest and they do what they do remarkably well. The hardest thing in radio is to get people out of a habit. No, the hardest people, the, one of the hardest things is to get people into a habit of listening to you. The only thing that's harder is get them out of the habit of listening to someone else. So people are, were into the habit of listening to 2GB. So we thought, okay, well, it's pointless doing what they do because... If you're going to do what they do, why are they going to go with us? So we thought we're not going to be a jibber fest. But also we're bringing you all these shows, a three-hour show on Saturday, a three-hour show on Sunday. You've got Friday night football. You've got Monday night football. You can't be serious all the time. So you've got to find somewhere in the middle. So you've got to look at, okay, what's not out there for the audience? And contemporary people is one of the first things. Got to have contemporary people because don't forget our audience they're our age rough. Yeah. They're from our audience is what, from mid twenties up to probably fifty-ish. Yeah. I would suggest. So you gotta have those because A, they're more relevant, having contemporary people, and they've got stories. They've got stories that we can relate to because they're talking about moments that we remember well. How important was it to leverage off the fact that Triple M management took the 
I guess, gamble in many respects to bring the grill team into breakfast. So, therefore, it had a sporting bent mm. from from breakfast and then the implementation of, of your show, The Rush Hour, I guess all stemming from the Dead Set legend. So, yeah. management had to take a gamble of, okay, going down that, well, almost taking it over, making it nearly an incomplete sports station in many respects. That's a really interesting observation because I've never actually made the correlation between grill team and full-time NRL. Triple M had been chasing NRL, at least inquiring, for many, many years. Now, we, 2007 was a, an exercise for us as a company and for the NRL to see how would it go. Triple M, a Monday night game, fairly, if we treat it with disrespect, pretty harmless for the NRL, really. It's one game a week. They get to experiment to see if there's a younger audience out there because as good as 2GBR and ABC, their audience, average audience, is mid-50s. They're preaching to the converted. You win over a younger audience on a Triple M and now you're talking to people you might be winning new fans over or at least providing a new outlet for a younger audience. Your correlation might be 100% right because once we went grill team, even though... They tried to be serious and newsy and all of that kind of thing. But yeah. when you put Mark Guy in the studio with Gus Warland and then, you know, Stuart McGill was there to, to sort of balance it out yeah. from a, a cricket sense. But then Matty Johns came along. So naturally, if there was going to be a big rugby league story on, yeah. the, on the Sunday, it was going to be discussed ad yes. nauseum on the Monday morning. Yeah. And Matty Johns, being who he is, yeah. circumvents a whole lot of radio issues and gets himself into the papers, which gives Triple M notoriety. I would say, to your point, it made sense once Grill Team was on that let's go full-time NRL, but I would also say that the business is about making money, and they saw how much money could be made with AFL, with what Triple M Melbourne did down there and uh, and the success they it's had. It's surprising in many ways that it took so long to get to Sydney because of that success in Melbourne. Yeah. I think there was – I'll tell you what, Ralph, I think there's been a prevailing attitude, not just with our company and just in general, that Melbourne – was AFL fanatic, and Sydney was, eh, we liked our rugby league, but not so much. But I think the landscape has changed so much in the last 10, 15 years that a league story, Mitchell Pearce happens, it's front page for days. When other atrocities happen, it's front page for days. I think there was a realisation that the thirst for sport in Sydney can be as big as in Melbourne. Now, that's not to say that Sydney's... that Melbourne's the sporting capital of the country, but you can do sport content on FM radio and make it work. I think that realisation gradually happened over the years. Well, couple that with the onset of social media and then you've got this instant of explosion of being able to promote it but also get your listeners to be able to chip in yeah. and promote themselves. So it's it's been this, I guess, wonderful marriage of, yeah. okay, we've got this thirst for sport, we've got these great experts, but we've also got this really good fan base that is young, vibrant and modern and in, has embraced technology and yeah. therefore has been able to sell your coverage. We um, That's 100% right. And also we had to think smart because there's no marketing for Triple M NRL. Not a cent goes in from our marketing department. Uh, so we think, okay, how are we going to, how are we going to get, it's got to be word of mouth. So it's things like getting in the paper and the first couple of years we got in the paper a lot because Billy Harrigan would say things. Gordon Tallis would say, uh, they all contributed. So that was key. Just that constant reminder that Triple M is on the radio. Phil Gould did something. I don't think we'd be here without Phil Gould. I'll tell you why. Back in 2008, 
We were a minnow, Monday night football, out in the wilderness, and Phil Gould had his grandstand fight, his big fight with David Gallup on Triple M. And that that was headlines for days. And it's too long to go through the story, but from that moment, that put us on the map because our ratings went up from eight to 14 and a half in that next survey. It, it goes to show you that, you know, there's nothing quite like publicity to get things uh, well, done. To be fair, people didn't even know. I get in cabs now. What do you do for a living? Oh, I work on the radio. Oh, yeah, who do you work for? Triple M. What do you do? I call the footy. Really? Triple M calls the... I get that all the time. That's a product of no marketing. So we have to do have to be word of mouth and have to be smarter with things like state of origin. We stay on longer than the others because you've got a captive audience in P1, yep. right? What are they going to do? They want to talk about, they want to listen to the game. So we'll play the press conference. They're the little things, bit by bit, that just win people over. And it shows because Survey 1 2013, we took a bath and we knew we were going to take a bath. We basically wiped out all the music audience and the football audience didn't know we were on yet. So no one listened. But bit by bit by bit, now we're at a point where we're the number one station for people 70 and under for rugby league. It doesn't get any publicity, that's fine, no. but it, it, it's ju- and we, it's happened gradually. So now all of a sudden, it's a viable financial option. So hopefully we've got it for many years to come. We spoke about working with Rabs earlier on. What's it also like working with somebody like Peter Sterling, who, in my mind, is the preeminent expert when it comes to rugby league from an ex-player's point of view? Yeah. He is the most articulate and concise and smartest ex-player to, to go into to, to the media. What's it like working alongside somebody like Sterling? It's amazing the different personalities that you get to work with. So you, you sort of have to feel them out. Okay, how do I push their buttons? Because my job is to get them to say something interesting. Yeah. Not that they don't say anything interesting to begin with. Sterling, well, he's the gold, you said it, he's the gold standard. And he's so professional as well. Like even from my point of view, if I rang him in the newsroom, He'd bring me back within five minutes. There might be other experts on the station that wouldn't even ring you back. But yeah. he is that professional and knows that, okay, he's being paid by, by the company. He kind of needs to make himself available for whoever within that company expresses his opinion because yeah. it's valued. Yeah, and you get a lot of feedback on social media. He gets the least feedback of hate whenever he has an opinion. So whenever Matty Johns has an opinion, you know, or Andrew Johns, you know, it brings about a raft and that's that's the that's the deal with social media, but Sturlo, Sturlo is, I, I think he and Gus are equal equally the gold standard of commentary. Gus can rub people up the wrong way. I love Gus, but um, yeah, he's the best. And I love on a Monday night, which is still my favourite gig oh, in terms of the football commentary, even though it disappears after this year. The combination he and Joey has, I think, is unbelievable because Sturlo is the pro and Joey is off the rails. But they're both equally, in fact, Joey, you know, being an immortal, well, they both have so many runs on the board, their opinion is 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 gold. But Joey, but- when he concentrates, when he's making a point, yes. you've got to listen to it. He has a, an opinion, and even on the, the television commentary, when he's talking, he's got this really great ability to break down a game and simplify it and make it so that you can, for the observer of the rugby league game, who might be a fan, but... He can tell you how that is playing out on the field. Now, that not every ex-player has that no. ability to, to put it together into words. Um, when we signed him many, many years ago, and I had no pull of the company, so you know I have an opinion and that's it, I didn't like it because I, all I knew of Joey 
was, as a television talent, very nervous, really didn't offer much. Anyway, they signed him. And very quickly on radio, where you turn up, half the time we're in a studio, so, you know, you're in a T-shirt and shorts, there's no cameras, there's no lights. The real Joey emerged. And the funny thing is, Ralph, I like him more when he's off the rails because, <laughs> you know, when he doesn't, when the game is rubbish, yeah. you know, when the game needs something, yeah. you know, on a Monday night. It gets back to that entertainment Because it's thing. 20 to nil after 20 minutes and you know, and it's between 14th and 16th, he's the club you need in the bag when the game, and, you know, let's be honest, half the games die pretty ordinary death. So he's perfect in that scenario. Let's talk about what it means for you to be a radio nerd, as it were, a sports lover, to combine all of those things and be rewarded for your effort like you were a few years ago with the Brian White Award mm. to get an ACRA. What was, what was that like for you? Uh, I feel very guilty because that's an award for journalists and I'm not a journalist. But I'd had a good year. Three stories I broke, and I don't break stories. I've probably broken five stories ever. But I broke three quickly. Bang, bang, bang. Ivan Henjak was sacked, and I got the word that he was gone before anyone, so I went to air with that. A couple of others I can't even remember. But it was nice to win one, very nice to win one. But, God, I felt I felt I won one. For the Brian White Award, and then Jason Morrison went on radio and said, this is, this is like the gold logo. Are you kidding? Are you kidding? So... Um, that was humbling because I really felt I didn't deserve it, and I'm not being, I'm not being disingenuous, because I, you know, hopefully, maybe one day I can win other awards. Not that they matter that much, as uh, someone dropped something out the back. <laughs> um, but I felt guilty for that one. The the really nice thing about that, I gave it to my mum and dad, and they've got, like it means more to them than me. They hung it, put it on the mantle, and you know, so that was that was pretty special. But, um, yeah, I didn't know where, what to do with that because, as I said, I mean, I'm not a journalist, Ralph. I, you know, I get on, I carry on like an idiot on radio, sometimes have an opinion, try and be entertaining, and that's it. What are your career aspirations from here? I mean, I spoke to Andrew Moore, as you mentioned, in an earlier episode of the, the podcast series about the fact that there's not a whole lot of rugby league callers out there. No. You're one of a handful. That's um, yeah. Is that, and having that uh, tutoring from Ray Warren... Do you have an eye on perhaps down the track calling it for TV or where you go with that particular skill? Because like I said, you can get a job as a real estate agent. You can get a job as anything else that, that you want and there's going to be hundreds, if not thousands of jobs. There's not many jobs. I think callers. about that because I'm a, I always think the world's coming to an end. I just assume I'm going to get sacked tomorrow for doing something and I always, it never is lost on me. There were maybe half a dozen people in the world that got to call that grand final last year. Well, that's unbelievable. So in terms of the future, I get that question all the time. Do you want to do TV? Which is very nice to get asked that question. You've got to be asked by the... It's, it's nice being asked by fans, but you've got to be asked by the broadcasters. I'd like to do it to see if I was good at it. I, you know, I'd be very different on TV than on radio. I know that. My burning desire was to be on radio, and I want to be the best I can be on radio. I want to get my commentary to a standard where I can go where I, you know, I listen back to every game looking for as many mistakes as I make. I'd like to actually listen to one back once and not find 15 things wrong with it. No one ever does the perfect game so that'll be a constant thing. When you, I'd like when you, to do television but not necessarily calling games. I'd like to call games. I'd like to present. I'm actually interested in the producing side. I, I take interest in how a game is broadcast and I, I watch a lot of American sport just to get a gauge of how they call the games, how they 
produced the game. So who knows? Ten years ago, I had no desire to call on radio. Even though that's what I grew up wanting to do, I yep. got away from that. I thought, okay, my career is reading sport, yep. eventually hosting, producing. Commentary wasn't even on the radar because Maroon was never going to leave. Yep. And uh, I was never good enough to do it. And then Maroon did leave. So I thought, well, this is this is the fork in the road. If I don't throw my hat in the ring now, this is in 2009, they'll go and get Andrew Voss and that'll be it. And I'll regret it forever. I didn't know if I could call footy. I said to the boss, I want to do this. And of course he said, can you do it? Like, do you know what you're doing? And I said, I think so. We got to an agreement where I drove to Seaford Oval to call an under-20s game because it was the only trial on that weekend. Right. We had to make a decision that week. It was between Canberra and Cronulla uh, where I had no team lists, nothing. So I had to make up names and make up numbers calling. It was 40 degrees. Oh. I thought they were going to call the game off thinking if they call this game off, I've got nothing to show. That's it. I gave it to them. Yeah, of course, I gave him the five minutes I was happy with. I didn't give him the 35 minutes that were rubbish. When you're in control of your own destiny, you've got to make yourself sound good. Recording right. on one of those old, on a mini disc, where I just assumed that the mini disc is going to tap on something and it's all going to get erased because yeah. that's what mini disc did. And, and that was it. Again, it gets back to luck. The luck, you've got to be in the right place at the right time and you've got to have the luck for people to have faith in you. And I, that's, my God, I've been lucky with that. Work ethic's a big part of your makeup as well. Not many people would be prepared to do what you do during an NRL season, but people that work in radio live in that constant fear of you never know <laughs> when you're going to get the result. It's happened to all of us a few times. Doing the, the coverage, hosting the rush hour, hosting the dead set legends, does that drive you, the fact that it could be all over tomorrow? That's it. Yeah, well, I do all those things because I actually love doing them. Yeah, of course. For different reasons. Football, I've always wanted to do football. Rush hour, you know, the freedom of doing an hour show, basically doing what I want, within reason. I mean, you know, the boss pulls me aside and says, mate, you're carrying on like an idiot. But the freedom to basically be myself on radio. You know, how few people get this opportunity. And then Dead Set Legends, working with Rabs and Richard Freeman is a joy. In terms of work ethic, if Rabs wasn't there, I wouldn't do it. And I'd have Richard do Rush Hour because I love working with him. But the only reason I still do Dead Set Legends, even though it's the biggest show on the station in terms of sport yep. is it's going to end with Rab soon. One day he's going to pull the pin. He's And every year he says, oh, Dan, I, Dan, I can't be doing Saturday morning sport. I've got enough on my plate. Well, so, I remember a quote in the paper from Ray Hadley about Rabs when the Dead Set Legends first started. Can I guess what the quote was? If he walked, if he does it, I'll walk backwards to Northmead. It was something <laughs> like that. <laughs> it was it was something like, I can't see Rabs doing this from Castle Hill, driving from Castle Hill to, back in those days to Bondi Junction every Saturday morning. Well, 17, 18 years, he's still there. You know he does rush hour from home, though. Yes. He does that. Uh, we set up in 2011. They gave us four weeks of drive time because whatever drive time show was on, They've been given the bullet. They took me out of grill team, thank God. Love the breakfast hours. Oh, mate. I love the show, but I couldn't do the hour. I couldn't do it. And I had you writing the scripts. I mean, this was the sweetest gig. I turned up. I turned up. All all I had to turn up was for the meeting at 5.10. I I just thought, okay, come up with one idea, which I know they're not going to use, but at least if I come up with one idea, I've sort of justified my existence. I read the scripts you gave me. I changed one or two words just to make make myself feel like I've achieved something <laughs> and I've done it my voice. And I'd leave, we'd, we'd have the post-show meeting and then I'd leave at 10 o'clock. Then I'd go home and have a nap for half an hour. Four yeah. hours later, I'd wake up and I'd be in that vicious cycle. So I hated I hated those hours. They gave us, I think they called it Dead Set Legends. No, they called it Rush Hour in the afternoon. 
And Rab said he'll do it, but he won't fight Peak out. He had three games a week to do that then. So they put in, they found an old OB truck with an old codec that they weren't using. So they stuck it in his house for four weeks. Well, five years later, it's still there. And, you know, Brilliant. he switches it on, and we got him on tonight, actually. He'll switch it on at 5.30, and away we go. We'll wrap it up in a sec, but I just want to, as a, the way that I wrap it up here on the, the podcast series, is for you to give advice to anybody looking to break into the industry. Okay. It's become a whole lot harder in recent years, given the fact that the industry is shrinking, but what advice would you pass on to anyone that's looking to get into radio well my path uh, is no good because there's no such thing as community switch voluntary work is just about out the door they don't like taking voluntary people on just annoy people find out when you go to the football for instance bail up me bail up someone you know and ask it'll annoy the hell out of us but you know what that's how you get in and what will happen is someone like me will say send an email to myself or to such and such just to get the contact rolling and then a producing gig will come up we we'll want someone to run cables. You know what I mean? That's how it starts. You just got to get your foot in. Annoy for long enough to get in. You won't get paid early, or if you do get paid, you'll get paid bugger all. It's amazing, Ralph. I don't know if you found this, but in the last 15 years, there are so few people that come up to us and say, I want a job. How do I do it? Whether they're off at schools at Max Rowley or at Bathurst, that's not the only path. No. Okay, you don't. I, I got a T, a T, a HSC, 52. I got in an arts degree because that's all I could get into. It's not the only path. If you don't get into Bathurst, don't think you can't make it. Just get in the building somehow. And then it's amazing. Once you're in the building, once you embed yourself in there, once you prove to be a useful resource, they'll call you in. They'll, uh, you know, the guy who panels for the rush hour has another job, but he panels because he likes. He likes. He, he wants to learn how to paddle. He learned how to paddle. It. Now he's embedded in the show. I can't do the show without it. And that's how it works. Just get in the building somehow. If it's Rock Patrol, Street Team, just getting in the building is not enough. It's a great start. You've got to go and push yourself on the Well, people. it gives you the opportunity to find the right people, right? Exactly. You then don't know where they're going to turn up. They might turn up at another radio station somewhere else. So that's you've it. automatically expanded your opportunities exactly by just meeting right. people. The people that get jobs out of doing Rock Patrol, Street Team, Black Thunders, whatever you want to call it, are the ones that volunteer themselves to be producers. Can I answer phones? Can I help out? And that's how you get it done. So it's still possible to get a start. And once you get a start, then it's on you. Then it's on you to show that you've got work ethic to show that you're not a pain in the ass, And that's the best advice I can give. Luck is everything. 90% of it is luck. I'm lucky. I'm here because I'm lucky. I got a commentary job because a bloke took a job at Vega. I got the original start because a bloke went to Europe. I got a show on the rush. I got the rush hour. I'll tell you how I got the rush hour is because they wanted to have five hours of sport on a Saturday. And I convinced them. The salespeople, this is a stupid idea. You're going to get killed. 2UE doesn't have a show on at the moment. That was the year they punted sports today. Yep. I said, put it on then, and we can win a lot of audience. And for whatever reason, they listen. But that was luck, the luck to have the opening. Everything is luck, but you need people. You need to give a reason to people to have faith in you. That's the best advice I can give. Dan Ganane, thanks very much for your How time. long did we talk? And there's no way that people have made it to the end because this was a, a waffle fest. There he is, Dan Ganane from Triple M. If you really enjoyed my chat today with Dan, please let him know by sending him a tweet at Dan Ganane. 
You can also follow us on Twitter, which is at MediaMatesAU. Check out the Facebook page. Most importantly, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be really great. It means you won't miss an episode. While you're there, please leave a rating or review. That way, more people will learn about the show. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the Media Mates Podcast. <laughs> Media Mates Podcast. Podcast.